Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. They fled hunger, political repression, and hyperinflation. Now, Venezuelan migrants across Latin America have met perhaps their biggest obstacle yet. The difference is that vulnerable Peruvians have family members, they have social networks, they have friends. Many, many, many Venezuelans do not have that kind of social network. If they don't make money, they don't eat. And this is a risk not only for the Venezuelan migrant population, it's also a risk for successfully and effectively fighting COVID. This week's issue is an emotional one for me, and I know for many of our listeners as well. It's about the 4.5 million Latin Americans who have migrated from one country in the region to another since 2015. Most of them are Venezuelans, but it's a number that also includes Nicaraguans, Haitians, Guatemalans, Salvadorans, and other countries as well. There's never been anything quite like it in the history of Latin America, and it's the subject of the new issue of America's Quarterly out this week. You know, when you look across the region at the way that that countries have received this unprecedented historic tide of humanity, the response has been mostly generous, uh, at times overwhelmingly so. And, you know, I, I have to say, just on a personal note, as an American, that kind of response is not something that should be taken for granted. It so happens that this issue has gone live during a week when the president of the United States moved to sharply curtail immigration yet again. And you look at that and you understand that things could have gone differently over these last couple of years, that the you know, the, the response of governments in Colombia and Peru and Argentina and Brazil and so on, most of these governments have been welcoming most of the time and, and the people in these countries as well. That said, we've also seen in polls over the last couple of years that the story has become more complicated and that xenophobia and resentment of migrants is on the rise uh, in many cases because of crime waves and Venezuelans often incorrectly are perceived to be behind that, also because of competition for jobs. And all of this was before the pandemic with the strains that that's putting on national health systems and also on economies. So today on the podcast, what we're going to do is we actually have two guests who are going to talk to us about the reality on the ground in the two countries that have received the most migrants, Colombia and Peru. Joining us now on the podcast is Lala Lovera, the founder of the Colombian NGO Fundación Comparte por una Vida, which advocates for Venezuelans like herself who have left their country. Uh, Lala, you're based in Bogota, uh, and you've been able to get really a firsthand glimpse of life uh, for the the nearly two million Venezuelans who have migrated to Colombia, often under very difficult circumstances over the last five years. Tell me, how are things right now for the Venezuelans who are there, and how have conditions changed since the pandemic really entered this new worrying phase? Well, Brian, thank you very much for the invitation. I think that. Um, the biggest challenge that they are facing right now is the is the policy of staying at home because we have to understand that almost 90% of the migrants that live in Colombia they are irregular so they don't have any kind of ID or or legal status in Colombia and also 75% of them they have an informal work so they work in the streets so right now, the stay-home policy for them, it's like another pandemic. 
And and how are they coping? I mean, I, these are people who, in many cases, were fleeing hunger. Uh, life was very difficult, and now they've they're, they're now in a place, Colombia, where because of these social distancing restrictions, and it's a, a country that has adopted a, a pretty strict quarantine. You know, hunger is is a real issue for a lot of Colombians right now, too. Of course, I think this is this is a drama of dimensions that were never thought of before. So it's for me, it's which is the pandemic, the hunger or the COVID-19, because they already crossed the border. They already faced all this huge and terrible things. Most of them have crossed the border through the trochas. I have to admit, I'm not totally sure what that word means. The trocha are all the illegal crossing points around the border from uh, Venezuela to Colombia. And you have to pass through a river. And also you have to pass through illegal policemen and all the, the, the guerrilla from this side of Colombia. So they will cross through the trochas. So it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge humanity problem. I think it, it's, it's terrible, Brian. So how has that changed now, that, that reality, that tough journey that you described? How have conditions deteriorated for people over the last month or so? Well, first of all, Colombia has closed the border. So people are still coming across. Well, but they are still coming across, of course by the illegal crosses, by the trochas, because they are hungry and they need to cross the border because they were they were doing some informal work on this side in Colombia, in Cucuta. So now they need they need to survive. And they are not worried about the COVID. They are worried because they are they are hungry. Their children are starving. We just read in the newspapers today and in in the news that uh, 9 million of Venezuelans are, well, this food insecurity. This is a reality. How has the government's response to migrants changed since the outbreak of the virus, besides the, the closure of borders, which you've already mentioned? How, how has the Duque government done in particular in terms of, uh, you know, meeting this challenge where it regards the Venezuelans who are in Colombia? So they are struggling. They are struggling because uh, we know that they haven't received the support from uh, the international community to, to support the economy for all the policies that migrants need. And now we're facing the, this pandemic. So I think they have these wonderful policies on the top, but the local governments right now, Brian, they are just desperate and now they are throwing back to Venezuela these people. This is, as I told you, this is a mirage. This is not reality. This is this is a lie. Putting them back in buses and throwing them in the border now cross again to Venezuela. You called the, the reports of people going back to Venezuela a mirage, but it is happening in some cases, right? When you talk about migration, you need to talk about their return, of course. And there are ways and there are policies about that that experts have been talking about. But Venezuela is not a country that can start receiving these migrants back because, of course, all their human rights are violated again and, and still. So for me, it's a mirage because it's, it's, it's not responsible. They're going to come back in a few months with the same vulnerable situations to get treated for the COVID. So... We need to address the policies that the national government had implemented, and we need to, as a civil society and the private sector and with the local government, we need to start implementing this. 
So even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw polls in Colombia indicating that, you know, resentment and this sentiment against migrants was on the rise. And look, I say this as somebody who's recording this from the United States, where we have had our certainly our own issues. I feel like I'm grossly understating this um, with with migration as well uh, and with anti-immigrant sentiment. How do you feel, if at all, that that feeling has changed uh, over the last six weeks or so with the explosion of this crisis? Has there been more solidarity? Has there been more resentment in an environment where unemployment is rising? Or do you see kind of a mixture of many things? About the xenophobia uh, with the Venezuelans, what I can see is it depends on the space where these Venezuelan migrants are. So my call is going to be for the local governments and their speeches, because from their speeches starts the xenophobia. You know, they start like, we don't have any money for the migrants because we have to take care of the Colombians. No, now we have to take care of a pandemic. So I can see the xenophobia that is just in spaces where Colombians feel that they won't be able to get a benefit because there's a Venezuelan as vulnerable as he is. So we need to start addressing our conversation in a different way. We are all vulnerable here. We all need help, not just one side or the other one. But the I understand that. But the political analyst in me hears you talk, and it sounds like a really difficult message for a Colombian politician to sell, because it's also, and look, I mean, to be clear, I'm not defending xenophobia, but I would also recognize that for Colombians, especially those in the working class, in a country where unemployment was already above 10%, even before this new economic crisis started, people are going to be looking out for themselves and and believing that Colombians should be first in line to receive aid. So how do you, if you're a politician, how how do you try to manage that? It's, it's really difficult, right? Of course, that's why my call always is that we have to create a synergy between all the development actors. That's why we need the private companies to start working and we need to start creating these spaces where we can integrate them all. And, and we're trying to do something new. This is something that is happening around the world. Of course, it's a big, big, big challenge that Colombia and the region has. But, but now it's time to start moving forward. Tell me, you know, finally, just a personal question for you, Lala. You've been living in in Colombia for many years, and there are a lot of similarities between Venezuela and Colombia. But what what do you what do you when you think about home, when you think about Venezuela, what do you miss the most, and and what do you hear from your fellow Venezuelans? What is it they miss most about home? Well, what I miss most is my Venezuela when I was growing up there. And for me right now, this is one of the most hardest part to see. All the values have changed. Sometimes I feel like a, like a Martian when I go there and visit my family. It's so hard. It's so hard. And being a migrant, it's so hard. Sometimes it's so hard because it's, I feel part of Colombia, but also I have a, a my heart in Venezuela.
After Colombia, the country that has received the most Venezuelan migrants is Peru. At least 860,000 Venezuelans have relocated there in recent years, and while the government's response was initially a welcoming one, uh, there have been concerns more lately that the pandemic may fuel xenophobia. I'm joined now by Feline Fryer, a professor at Universidad del Pacifico in Lima who has studied migration in the region extensively. Filene, it's good to talk to you. You know, when we first met in Lima back in February, I, I was there for a week, and that was enough time to really see kind of both sides of the migration debate there. On the one hand, generosity and understanding from a lot of Peruvians who I spoke to and a lot of Venezuelans who I interviewed who said that they'd see, seen the same thing, but also, uh, you know, a lot of resentment a lot of what I think you could fairly call xenophobia, um, especially among the working class who who felt like they were competing with Venezuelans for jobs. And one guy told me, a construction worker told me, you know, they can always find a Venezuelan who can do the job um, at half the cost and without some of the safety requirements either. That was, of course, all before the pandemic really blew up. And I imagine the tensions are are starting to grow even more now as economies everywhere kind of go down the tubes. What does your research and just day-to-day conversations suggest is happening on that front? Thank you, Brian. It is actually very interesting and maybe a little bit counterintuitive what is happening right now. So we conducted a a representative flash survey with Venezuelans uh, over the weekend, and we asked about their perceptions of xenophobia now during COVID compared to pre-COVID, and also the expectations uh, for what is going to happen with xenophobia and xenophobic uh, discrimination post-COVID. And they said, 20% said that they actually perceived that discrimination had gone down and that it would go further down after the COVID crisis. And then the majority said they thought that uh, the levels of xenophobia had stayed the same, right? But this percentage really, really uh, surprised us. And I think this has a lot to do with what triggered xenophobia in the first place. So what we have to understand is that there has been an absolute skewed reporting of crimes committed by Venezuelans in Peru. So before COVID, what you saw on television uh, while you had breakfast, <laughs> during lunch and during dinner, if you do watch television while you're eating, it was crimes committed by Venezuelans. That was the number one topic that sold in the media, in social media, uh, on TV, Uh, and even the radio. So we had this mass hysteria created by the media, which did not reflect numbers at all. When you were in Peru, I I told you about this workshop we conducted with uh, regional journalists of more than 20 regions in Peru. And we asked them about their perceptions, the journalists' perceptions of crime and crimes reported that had been committed by Venezuelans and by Peruvians. And these reporters thought that in the last three years, up to 80% of crimes had been committed by Venezuelans. And only two or three of the 20, I think it was 24 journalists knew that the actual number of crime reports filed at the police were 0.5. So what, what we have to understand is that xenophobia was based largely on this fear that was created on this myth of basically all Venezuelans or 80% of Venezuelans being criminals. So what has happened now during COVID is that the media do not report on crimes committed by Venezuelans anymore. They they report on COVID and on people dying because they got infected. So that has led, I think, to this perception amongst the migrants that we interviewed that xenophobia has gone down. 
I don't know whether I share their optimism that it will continue to to stay down after after the crisis. And this is exactly for the reasons you've mentioned. There already has been competition on the labor market, especially in the informal market. But one has to give the context here. Seventy three percent of the Peruvian economy is the informal market. right? So our economy in, essentially is informal. Yeah, I mean, which I, I just note that's high for Latin America. I mean, the, the Latin American average is, is about 50 percent. So Peru, despite having had an economy that has grown a lot over the last couple of years, it's a very high percentage of informal workers. Right. Uh, and there will be more competition. I, I think what I see is that there is an opportunity to to break up these hardened structures. And I would say that, you know, in the social social tissue, there had been like already this hardening of xenophobic sentiments, but also of fears amongst Venezuelans to be attacked yeah, by Peruvians. So I think in a way, this crisis is an opportunity to break that up and to to introduce different narratives. And that is happening in the media as well. So suddenly we see reports again, both of vulnerable Venezuelans and of Venezuelan doctors being integrated into the public health system. So I see it as an opportunity, but I don't know how optimistic we should be because, uh, again, those economic factors will come into play and they will come into play hard. And um, as you said, I think there is a, a great risk that that will be used by politicians and and um, create um, even yeah, increased sentiments of, of, of xenophobia and rejection of the Venezuelan other. Well, sometimes a crisis can bring people together. Um, but then there's the other possibility. And I, I keep looking at this crisis, trying to understand it from a political perspective. And it's, it's hard because you're trying to game out human behavior, basically. You're trying to guess how people will react over time. Let me ask you, though, I mean, one thing that also struck me, and I, let me um, reveal something here uh, that I haven't really talked about publicly, which is, um, you know, I went to Lima to try to find politicians who were trying to take advantage of this xenophobia and kind of being rewarded, right? And, uh, similar to what we've seen here in the United States and in in Germany as well. And I didn't really find it. How do you explain that? I think that this is still a really new phenomenon, right? So it has taken um, the region by surprise. So Venezuelan displacement, when did it really start? 2017, but 17, the numbers were low and there was a very positive public perception of this migrant flow because Venezuelans, for the longest times, Venezuela was the safe heaven no? for many um, Peruvians, Colombians who went to Venezuela to, to work. Venezuela was one of the richest, if not the richest country in the region. Venezuelans were more educated. So I think that that every political and social process takes some time. And I agree, maybe one, one could have expected more politicians to take advantage of this. And although there is xenophobia, I think there are other issues such as basic service delivery, also the conflict with the, with the mining industry that are still closer to heart of the, of the median voter than, than the issue of immigration. Over the past couple of years, Peru has experimented with a few different ways to integrate migrants, ranging from a, a, a temporary residency permit to a humanitarian visa. There has also been efforts to integrate migrant kids into the education system in Lima. But, you know, there, there really doesn't seem to be anything approaching a semi-permanent or permanent solution to that challenge yet. Basically, giving all of these people who polls show intend to stay uh, even if things unexpectedly get better back in Venezuela. 
Where do you see that headed and how, if at all, does the pandemic change things? Yes. So just to give a little bit of context, Peru was one of the first countries to develop or or issue a special uh, residence permit or a, a work visa, which it issued to more than half a million Venezuelans up until last year. So it was a very generous um, response. Again, we have to understand that Latin American countries have extremely progressive immigration and refugee laws. So from a legal perspective, all of the countries fall short of of actually implementing their laws. Now, that said, all of these um, responses, I think that the idea was to to maintain political control. So if if Peru would have accepted uh, all Venezuelans as refugees, they could not send them back and they would still not be able to to send them back, which they're trying to do, until the situation in Venezuela has improved considerably. So I think these programs that were always limited in time that usually gave um, legal status retroactively Uh, were a means of of maintaining control, at least the illusion of political control. And this did change. Last year in June, when Peru implemented a so-called humanitarian visa and de facto started denying the right to file asylum claims at the border between Ecuador and Peru. And at this point, uh, Peru had already received more than 300,000 asylum applications. It had issued 100,000 of these special visas, but public opinion had shifted. And the discourse of the president did shift towards saying enough is enough and we cannot take it more. And he did politicize this issue. So so that was a very populist move. And it did make use of the issue of xenophobia to gain politically. But it's not the main topic Viscada ran, ever ran with or is running with right now. And just to explain this humanitarian visa, which is interesting, um, it's it's called a humanitarian visa partly to meet these progressive standards of of the of the legislation, but it's a euphemism. Uh, it's a humanitarian visa that establishes humanitarian exceptions to to let people enter who do not have the visa. If you have a humanitarian visa that needs humanitarian exceptions, that already tells you that it's not very humanitarian. Um, and basically, right last time I checked, a couple of months. Ago, Ago, they were giving um, appointments to apply for the visa in Venezuela for early 2022. Um, so the decision was really to try to close the border for Venezuelans, which comes with the whole set of problems such as irregular border crossings. What is life like for Venezuelans in Peru right now? And, and how, how has that changed since the pandemic started? So life for Venezuelans in Peru, on average, already got more difficult in the last few months. And um, and there we have to understand the changing characteristics of Venezuelan immigrants um, who came into Peru in the last two to three years. In the beginning, beginning it was uh, very high-class, high-skilled migrants who arrived on airplanes and could basically integrate into the formal economy swiftly. Um, And then from 2018, we saw a second wave of middle class, lower middle class migrants who came on buses. Many of them got the special uh, residence permit. That didn't necessarily mean that they integrated into the formal economy. Most of them didn't, but they had legal status. They had access to emergency healthcare and and primary education for the children, uh, secondary education as well, and peace of mind, right? Because at least they they were allowed to be in the country. 
And then in the last, already since mid-2018, we increasingly saw people in very vulnerable conditions who might have been middle class in Venezuela a couple of years ago, but who lost everything and who came walking all the way from Venezuela. So the majority of people uh, before the, the humanitarian visa was introduced last year already came in walking, carrying their children, carrying their suitcases 30, 40 days from Venezuela. So... Of course, this population will find it harder to integrate and more so after the, this, this policy change because they're now in an irregular situation which, uh, with increasing barriers to healthcare, to any kind of uh, social protection, uh, to school integration, etc., etc. So we in Peru, we're, we've, we've been in, in, in lockdown or quarantine for the past five weeks. This will probably be extended. The government is thinking about it. And this is being enforced by police and military in the streets. So we are really not allowed to leave. This is detrimental for many Peruvians as well who work in the informal economy, who, who survive hand to mouth, right? If they don't work, they don't make money, they don't eat. The difference is that vulnerable Peruvians have family members, they have social networks, they have friends. If they do become evicted, they can move in with someone else. Many, many, many Venezuelans do not have that kind of social network. If they don't make money, they don't eat. Uh, if they are evicted, they sleep on the street. Uh, and this is a risk not only for the Venezuelan migrant population, it's also a risk for successfully and effectively fighting COVID. Felini, let me conclude with a personal question, if you don't mind. Um, you have been in living in Peru for many years now. It's a country that you know very well. Um, you're uh, German a country that has seen the rise of a, a far-right um, anti-immigrant political movement. I'm American. Uh, we've seen similar things here. What's it like watching all this play out right now, just as, as a foreigner living in Peru? So I think the honest answer would be that most of the time, it makes me feel extremely privileged. Uh, I am a foreigner. I am German. Sometimes people do hold it against me because they say I'm the, the gringa, although I'm not from the United States. Uh, what does she know about migration policies in Peru? So that does happen. Um, but but most of the time, I'm just reminded of um, how where you come from and what you look like still yeah, makes a big difference in, in countries around the world and in countries in, in South America. Am I worried about right-wing populists taking over in, in Peru? I Maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but I, I don't really think so. Um, and again, I think that many of, of the other other political issues uh, weigh heavier than the fear or, or the rejection of, of, of migrants. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>